Um, I know a few of us had the opportunity to go to the lecture there last week, and um, it's just, I can't say enough about St. Mary's. I just, you know, as, as somebody who went to school there, um, I just, I beg you to at least get to know it and be familiar with it as Christians who live in the Baltimore area. Uh, it is one of the, um, I would just say, a, a, a beacon of the kingdom uh, that, that we would have that um, in, 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 at our city and in, for the, uh, the city of Baltimore. Um, <clears throat> specifically, also, I was, would draw your attention, um, you know, if, if maybe you say, well, I love this morning's worship, it was incredible, but you know what really is my thing, what really gets me going it is books. <laughs> I will show you. This week, I got really excited because this came in the mail. This, this uh, large paperweight that they use to stop tractor trailers from go drifting down hills. Um, uh, N.T. Wright wrote a new book. Um, the guy wrote like another book like six months ago, and it was like just as big. So I don't know where he gets the time to write all this stuff. But anyway, this one's called The New Testament in Its World. Um, I've just just came in the mail a couple of days ago, but basically it's a textbook for the New Testament. I, I would strongly recommend uh, making this book a part of your personal library. If you're somebody who has like an interest in the New Testament to kind of use as a personal reference guide, it really is uh, fantastic. Um, so anyway, I, it's up here if you if you want to if if large tomes are your thing, just just take a look at it. So um, back in 1997. When I was a junior in high school, uh, I took driver's ed um, after school, making sure just about everybody did, and I'm sure it was a comparable experience that many of you had. And we gathered after school and um, in the cafeteria and listened to this heavily tanned retired gym teacher uh, give us some lectures on driving. Um, then we'd go into a trailer and watch a simulation film on a reel-to-reel from like the 70s at least, or earlier, and then we'd learn about the Smith system of no-accident driving. Does anybody remember? I mean, you actually probably all heard a lecture, or at least slept through a lecture, on the Smith School of No-Accident Driving, if you have a, a driver's license, uh, you know, street smarts. This was a five-point teaching that, that I only remember four of the points because I watched the video on YouTube this past week. But, but I've always remembered the first point because our instructor would, would like shout it at us while we were in the car with him. Aim high at steering! Aim high at steering! I, I don't know what that means. If I hadn't been so scared to death of the guy, I might have asked him what that meant. Eventually, eventually, I picked it up, and, and I think it could be a useful sermon illustration. Aim high at steering means that your target is the center of your lane way out ahead. This, um, so to say straight, uh, you have to be aware of what's coming and to prepare you for kind of mentally to, to stay ahead of your current position. If your concentration is right in front of you as you're driving... Um, or off to the side, um, you're less likely to see that stopped car or that red light or that pedestrian. If you're doing it correctly, then you'll be more likely to see how those things that are right in front of you factor into like the big picture of where you're going. It, it helps us stay alert. So if I'm driving, I'm aiming high at steering, maybe I'm, I'm aiming for the door, and if I'm actually driving a car outside the church, and 
everything that's kind of around me, you know, I, 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 I see that the whites are over here, and I see the wests are over there, and I see there's the firsts over there, but my goal is the door. So I'm cognizant of them, I'm cognizant of them, and I'm driving in the direction of my target. Now, if you're too old, or I'm sorry, if you're too young to drive a car, everything I just said still applies to Mario Kart. So, anyway. In today's passage, Jesus is basically telling us that he wants us to aim high in steering. He wants us to always keep our eyes on the the telos, the, the object of our ultimate destination. And just like driver's ed, he wants us to remember that keeping our eyes on true north doesn't leave us less able to address the needs of our current position. It actually increases our awareness of the whole picture. So today, we're continuing in our series, The New Way to Be Human, which is a series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's been said that the Sermon on the Mount is the greatest sermon ever taught by the greatest teacher who ever lived. Jesus' whole point in the sermon is to help us see that our telos, our target, the thing which we should seek first is his kingdom, which he instructs his disciples to pray would come on earth as in heaven. Just as Jesus has no time for a message that says that religious, uh, religion or faith or Christianity or Judaism, for that matter, is only about eternity or only about fire insurance so that you can go to heaven when you die. No, Jesus tells us that our aim, that to aim high and keep our eyes fixed on the kingdom, he's telling us that because we've aligned our lives with seeking first God's kingdom, that is going to have very practical effects on how we live our lives now. In short, if heaven is your goal, that is going to affect your earthly choices along the way. So let's dive in. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 19. If you need a Bible, there's Bibles in the back, and there's Bibles in your pews, and I would argue that there should be a Bible in your hand. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust, or actually vermin, uh, could actually be an accurate uh, translation there, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So, for starters, the first principle discussed is pretty simple to understand, although it's not easy to live out. Jesus is warning us not to treasure those things that are temporary. Last week we talked about how fasting is a practice um, in pausing the temporary in order to help us focus on the eternal. This comes right along with that in that Jesus is cautioning us against placing great value on anything that is simply going to deteriorate over time or rust. The thing to remember here isn't that possessions are bad, but as the age-old adage says, do your possessions, um, do you own your possessions or do your possessions own you? Let's say that you asked for a new bike for Christmas. First of all, there's nothing wrong with asking for a new bike for Christmas. There's nothing wrong with giving someone a new bike 
for Christmas. Hint, hint, wink, wink. The truth is, for anyone who has been at a yard sale, though, you know that brand new bikes that sell for hundreds of dollars at Christmas time go for maybe 20 bucks at the average yard sale. Now, hopefully, the time between the Christmas of the gift and the yard sale was full of rich, happy memories involving the bike. When I was a kid, riding bikes with friends was a foundational activity of childhood because it always led to other adventures. The thing is, as I look back, I'm happy to say that my memories are of my friends and where we'd go in the neighborhood and not the bike itself. It was good for me to love my bike. It was certainly good for me to be grateful for it and take care of it and and use it for the tool that it was created to be. It's been said that the best things in life, though, aren't things. And he who dies with the most stuff still dies. So this principle could go for anything, right? Cars and phones and boats and houses and bank accounts, you name it. Even if you're able to leave the possession behind for a future generation, it has to be considered that the more time, money, and energy we pour into the accumulation of stuff, the more that threatens to divert our attention away from our resources, and our attention and our resources away from our target, away from the thing that really matters. The Apostle Paul, he put it this way in 1 Timothy 6, But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But we have food, but if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. For those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into too many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. That's some hard words for those of us who would like a few more bucks in our bank account. But did you catch the foundational principle there at the end? Money is not the root of all evil. New bikes aren't the root of all evil. Homes aren't the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's making making, uh, money your target. That's going to lead to all kinds of nasty directions. It's when we make money or any other possession for that matter, matter our God. That's when evil finds a hole to get in and it can corrupt our lives violently. It may be appealing to make money or possessions our God. It may be appealing to make money or possessions our target because they are the things that are right in front of the car. I love God, but i got to pay the bills, right? I want to follow Jesus, but I need somewhere to live, right? Jesus continues by saying, he says, the, the eye is the lamp of the body. What does he mean by the eye is the life of the body? Basically, he means aim high in steering. If your eye is healthy, so if your target object is correct, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? You're going to be driving in the dark. This way and that, chasing after all kinds of things that are only going to lead to heartbreak and pain because they aren't God. 
No one can serve two masters, Jesus says, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve, you cannot make your target both God and money. And to continue this driving analogy, God is not interested in the passenger seat. Let me take us on a quick detour for a moment. You see, I think that we do this thing where we assume that God fits neatly into Sundays as long as it's convenient to us. We forget that He is a 24-7 God, just as alive at 3 p.m. on a Thursday as He is at 10 o'clock on a Sunday. The problem with our culture is that we've put Sunday in the passenger seat, and we've put Sunday as the last day of our weekend instead of the first day of our week. We have to remember that if we are the church of Jesus Christ, then that means that we are people of the resurrection and our identity is rooted in the resurrection. And the resurrection happened when? On the first day of the week. Why is that important? Because we believe that in Christ, God is welcoming his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of kingdom new creation. We believe God is putting this world back together again. He's putting this world to rights. And the problem is that we've often treated church like it's the last thing that we do in the week and it needs to be the first. The church worship gathering is the thing that charges our batteries so that we can burst out of the tomb with Jesus into our weeks wherever he may lead us. And if we're doing that, then every moment we breathe every talent we practice, every dime we earn are all because of His grace, His creative, dynamic energy working through us. We so easily forget that the earthly treasures we are laying up are only earthly treasures because God gave them to us in the first place. He gives us these gifts of time, talent, and treasure, and then we turn around and we make them God. But if we're aiming high at the kingdom, then these things are stuff. They remain only that, and we can use them, actually, for his glory. Our money, it's part of the picture, but it's not the whole picture. It's important for us to steward it well, but, but never at the expense that we worship it, never at the expense that we make it our target. Our possessions, they're tools for doing life, but they aren't life itself. Jesus tells us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. In the ancient world, the heart, it was thought of as, as more than just the source of your emotions and your affections. No, when Jesus talks about the heart, he's talking about the very essence of a person. Um, the, the real you, the you under the you. Repeatedly in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' point has been that his desire is our heart. We see a picture here of what God really treasures. Have you ever wondered that? What does God see as valuable? God values your heart. We might want to say that God sees the human heart as priceless, but, but that's not really true, is it? God knew what the price of the human heart was, and he paid it. He paid it on the cross. That's how much he values your heart. He put on flesh and died a sacrificial death for you. So yeah, God 
values the human heart. And He wants you to fill it with things. He wants you to invest in things that are going to last. He wants you to invest in eternity. And that's Jesus' ultimate point, that, that if God is really on the throne of our lives, then our investments should be in things that are going to last. When we say the Nicene Creed, we say that one day Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and His kingdom will have no end. You, you want to invest in something that's going to last? Invest in the kingdom. He tells us to lay up treasures in heaven. He's telling us to invest in eternity. How do we do that? We might ask, what are the avenues of our investment? I'd say that there's three avenues that we should continually take stock of. And these things are intimately connected to one another. In fact, they really don't make much sense without each other. So you're going to see a lot of overlap. I'd say that these three avenues of investment, these categories of things that we could be doing to lay up treasures in heaven, are worship, discipleship, and mission. So, for starters, worship is acknowledging that God is God and nothing else is. When God is properly on the throne of your life, everything else has the proper light shown upon it. When we've properly aimed high at God and His kingdom, we can best see this other stuff that is just stuff and ask the question, is this thing a tool with which I can live my life to God's glory, or is this a thing that is getting in the way of my worship? The question we must ask is, am I treating God as the destination, or am I regulating Him to Sunday mornings and placing something else on the throne? Speaking of other things on the throne, there is no way around the fact that Jesus is especially referring to money in this passage and, and others. The importance of money management cannot be denied. But it may be easy for us to assume that if we properly budget our money, we're in the clear. Budgets are good stewardship, but they aren't necessarily a sign of worship. There are times when we can regulate God to a section of our budget the same way we regulate Him to a section of our week. The problem with that is that God wants to be the Lord of your entire budget, not just your tithe line. Many choose to give the first fruits of their income as a gift and offering to God, back to God in worship. That is a tremendously good habit because it reminds us that all of our treasure comes from God in the first place. And our first step is to give back for kingdom purposes. We must never fall for the lie, though, that we can simply give our 10% and then walk away in the clear. God doesn't want your 10%. He wants 100%. The 10%, the 5%, the 15%, whatever it is, it is a regular habit, but that's a regular habit of worship. It's not the whole thing because Jesus wants all of it. No matter how much money you give um, to an organization or to a church, and you can't then just walk away and say, and then now I'm going to target at something else, like the accumulation of wealth or possessions or anything like that. No, that may be a daunting principle, but, but here's the cool drink of water. Oftentimes, when we lay our treasures up to heaven, God's going to give them right back to us. And he's going to say, there's nothing wrong with owning a house. 
or a car or building up a, balance, a, a savings account. But, but are you accounting for God's lordship in all things or are you worshiping the gift rather than the giver? I mean, what does that look like in practice? It, it looks like taking inventory of the ways that you're spending your money and prayerfully bringing it to God and asking Him to help, to, asking Him to be a part of these choices. I mean, when you make a purchase, when you put money in a savings account, can we ask, can we prayerfully say, I am doing this because my eye is on the prize, because my eye is properly aligned, centered to target true north? Or have I drifted off? See, I'm stressing treasure because that's what Jesus stresses here, but the same principle could be applied to time and talent. In fact, we can reference time and talent in reference to the other two avenues of investment. In regards to investing in your discipleship, is God the Lord of your calendar? If we were to project up on that screen the details of how you spent the previous week, what would we see as your priorities? Was there time set aside for prayer? Was there time set aside for personal devotion? Have you prioritized small group, house church time in your calendar? Who are the people that you can point to on your calendar and say, ah, yes, this is when I'm meeting with the group of people that I'm sharing life with. They're investing in me, and I'm investing with them because I'm trusting that that's going to have eternal consequences. Where does your family fall on your schedule? Where does your spouse fall on your schedule? Time with your kids. I'm convinced that one of the most important practices for a married couple to invest in the kingdom of God, if you're interested, if you have your target in the kingdom of God, I'm convinced that one of the most important practices for a married couple to do is to participate in a house church together. Study the Word of God alongside one another. If you're married, there is never going to be anyone in your life that could speak truth into your life and help you find true north, help you find your center like your spouse. And I'm also convinced that one of the most important practices for parents to do is for them to participate. Uh, one of the most important practices for parents to do for their kids is to participate in a house church together as a family. Faith, they say, is more caught than taught. When your kids see you prioritizing your own discipleship in your calendar, uh, making Sunday morning church time a non-negotiable, making a, a, a house church time a non-negotiable, when your kids see that, you better believe that it's going to have an impact on their lives as they grow up. Another aspect of a calendar uh, would, that would aid in your kingdom investment is the concept of Sabbath, taking one day out of seven that you set apart for God to recharge your batteries. One day out of seven when your work is done, even when it isn't. Our house church had a great discussion about Sabbath this past week, and of course there's lots of things that we could say about it, and we won't because it's late in the sermon, but here is something that I walked away with that I think could be helpful, a helpful principle overall. I know that the concept of taking a day off it's difficult. But what would Sabbath look like for you if you were doing it right? Let's just start with that. What would a day look like that was completely crafted, personally crafted to helping you recharge and recenter with God? 
If our goal is to aim high in steering, Sabbath is the day that is designed to help you recenter that target. What would it look like if you were getting it right? Let's just be honest. What would it look like if you were getting it right? Maybe your answer seems like an unreasonable goal right now in your life stage, but maybe we could at least do ourselves the favor and name what it is that we're not doing. Name what it is that we could do, and maybe that's just a start. At least be honest with yourself about what you should be doing or not doing on Sabbath, and then maybe we can live into that. Trust that Jesus is going to guide us there, but at least name it as a first step. But this principle, it applies to your entire calendar. I mean, what would it look like if you sat down with your calendar and said, you know, what would my calendar look like if I was truly aiming at the kingdom? Now, bringing our treasure to worship and crafting our time to meet the needs of discipleship are ultimately going to aid us in the third area of investment that needs our attention, and that's mission. Now, in regards to mission, I'd like to tie that to the area of our talents. Sometimes, oftentimes, when we think of mission, we think of missionaries, a word that conjures up kind of images of people going to lands far away and preaching the gospel to people who have never heard it before. That could be an aspect of what I'm referring to when I'm saying mission, but that's not really what I had in mind. When I refer to the word mission, I mean the duty that we all have towards the Great Commission. If you're a follower of Jesus, then he's instructed you and I to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them all that Jesus has commanded. Now, it's true that Jesus came to announce the kingdom of God. So a fundamental part of what it means to fulfill the Great Commission and make disciples would be to proclaim that gospel. But as St. Francis said, Our duty is to proclaim the gospel at all times and use words only when necessary. The problem, the primary way that we are to proclaim the gospel is through our actions, our talents. If you have a job, one of the most important ways for you to live out the Great Commission is to do your job really well. If you're a student, one of the most important ways to live out the Great Commission is to study well. If you're a parent, one of the most important ways that you can live out the Great Commission is to parent well. The same principle could be applied to those who open their home, to friends and hospitality, or those who prioritize um, service and, and, uh, and work in the church, work towards the church, or volunteer at a local food pantry, or a nursing home, or do any of the other sort of things that Christ followers do. When you put your hands to something in Jesus' name, you are proclaiming the gospel through your actions. When you treat others with dignity and respect and kindness, you are proclaiming the gospel through words and actions. When you wake up tomorrow morning and go do the thing that you do, never forget that God just doesn't want to go with you. He has prepared that work for you. Ephesians 2.10 says that we are God's handiwork. We're created in Christ Jesus to do good works, to exercise our talents, which God has prepared in advance for us to do. 
And we pour our lives into that. And we live our lives as men and women of integrity. And one day, it's going to come. You get the opportunity. You get the question. Why is it that you care so much? Why is it that you've poured your life? Why is it that you live your life so sacrificially? You get to say, with all honest, with all uh, reality of a foundation of trust, that I do all of this because God first loved me. And then you create the natural opportunity to share this gospel, to proclaim this gospel, to invite someone to church, to do the things that you might normally think about in regards to mission, but that gives you that opportunity because we're building um, for the kingdom. We don't build the kingdom. God builds the kingdom, but we're building for it. One more thought as we close. My uh, sons, uh, James and Henry, went away with me uh, the past two days uh, to West Virginia to see my dad, and we did a couple other things to give Amy a, a few days alone, and that was great. And um, so we get back you know, yesterday, and, um, and then this morning we start getting ready to go to church. And, you know, we start talking about how we need to go. And Henry knows what needs to happen when we need to go. And it, you know, looks like shoes and it looks like teeth brushing and things like that. Okay, we need to get our stuff ready to go. And I heard him say, you know, go, go. Um, and, I, and I just instinctively said, but this time mom's coming with us. Meaning, like, yeah, we're going to go. But he might have thought like, oh, you know, I, we need to go. And that means I, you know, we're going to leave mom again. Because, of course, he was missing mom the whole time that we were gone. And I said, oh, no, no, no. Mom's coming with us. And I just, it, it hit me as a, as a way to close the day that, you know, um, Jesus is going with us. When we invest in these things, when we spend time in worship and, and discipleship and mission, um, it, it might be easy to think like, you know, we come to church and we recharge our batteries and then, you know, God's going to stay here and do whatever God does here in the church and then we're going to go out and live our lives out there. No, no, no. He, he's going with us. He's going to go with us, and he's going to be with us at 3 o'clock on a Thursday. You know, when you have those afternoon doldrums like I do, and it's just like, oh, gosh, I'm just so tired, you know. No, God is there. He wants us to be with him. He wants us to know that his Holy Spirit has saturated that area long before we ever walked into that room. He has prepared this work. He's prepared this opportunity to worship. He's prepared this opportunity for discipleship. He's prepared our calendar for us. All of that lives and that creates an opportunity for us to build for the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Let me pray for us.